This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. I was doing a four-point roll, low level. The seat slid all the way back, and there I was inverted and headed for the ground thinking, oh my gosh. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Living Legends of Aviation member, Julie Clark. Julie has more than 50 years of safe flying and is an FAA master pilot. For over 40 years, she's been a solo aerobatic airshow performer, almost all of that in her P-34. She's got over 34,000 accident-free hours, and she's typed in 66 types of different aircraft. Julie, thank you so much for your time today, and welcome to the show. Oh, Richard, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to be talking to you again. I first met you when I was an F-15 demo pilot a few years ago, and I remember seeing your performance back then in what was the Mopar T-34, which is now the Tempest T-34. And so it's so great to see that you've done so well uh, through all these years and continued your, your exciting and thrilling air show. I feel so blessed. I I tell people I've, I've had the best career as an airline pilot and air show pilot and um, always have a, a front row seat with a window. So um, <laughs> I feel so blessed to have been able to do what I really, truly love to do, and that was to fly. And I, I knew that as a little kid, that that's what I wanted to do for a living. Yeah, and the way you fly your airplane and the way you fly your air shows, your joy of aviation just really shines through as it does in your out-of-the-cockpit um, engagements with people and personalities, and so I always appreciated that uh, through the years of watching you perform in and out of the cockpit. Well, thank you for that. You know, the people are what make the air shows uh, happen. It's, you know, we want to take care of the people who want to come see the pilots and see the airplanes, and um, we're so blessed that we have the freedom to be able to just put on air shows and, uh, you know, wave the airspace so that we can... Uh, show what airplanes are capable of doing. And you of all people leading the Thunderbirds, I, I know you know what I'm saying, that without the air shows and the fans, we wouldn't have these great events. Yeah, yeah. Well, in all that flying, in uh, over 50 years of flying, and then not just to have 50 years of safe flying, but in 40 years of that, to be doing it in solo, low-altitude, aerobatic air show performance is really remarkable. You must have had a few situations where things got a little tense. 
I have, and, I've, and you're really right. I, it, my neck's really been hanging out there, so I'm, I'm very proud of this Master Pilot Award because, um, to be honest with you, I didn't really know much about the award until they contacted me. <laughs> so somehow they keep track of how many yeah. years you've been flying and, and um, whether there's a, a rap sheet on you or not. <laughs> so I was <laughs> happy to, to get that phone call um, from the FAA that they were awarding me this fifth years of safe flying. And you're right, with my neck hanging out, um, I've had a few moments where um, it was questionable as to how it was going to end up. So, Julie, you were sharing with us uh, an event you had at an air show in Vacaville. You hadn't been in the industry that long. And so our audience can appreciate the kind of environment that you have flown in safely for more than 40 years. You came in when you were allowed to fly get a competence, an aerobatic competency card that allowed you to fly at air shows down to the surface. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. I, I never really had a limitation in altitude uh, in those days. You know, I've got my ACE card. Well, they wasn't even called an ACE card then. What was it called? Um, it was to be able to fly air shows. Um, oh, low-level waiver. I guess that's all they called it. You, you have yeah. a low-level waiver card is what they would say. Yeah. That makes sense. And so um, you, you're allowed to do air show aerobatics in sanitized airspace all the way down to the surface. And you're doing it in a T-28, which is a horse of an airplane, right? It's got that big, massive engine out front with the controls. It takes a great deal of effort to roll and maneuver that thing, especially at slower air speeds. So talk to us a little bit about uh, what it's like to fly an airplane like that at low altitude. The part of that airplane that I really hated was if you even blinked, you were out of trim. It, there was mm. just something about it. And also, you could really gain a lot of speed real quick, but then you put that nose vertical, and that speed would bleed off so quickly that then you'd come back over the other side going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, there I am, you know, just wondering. You know, I, I never got that low, but there were times when it, it got my attention about finishing a maneuver because you pick up the speed quick, but you gobble it up so quickly. And then you point the nose north again, and the speed just bleeds off. That's the only thing about the T-28 that was very challenging to me and also just out of trim all the time. Yeah. I remember talking to Bob Hoover about that. I said, how do you fly that airplane? Every time I fly it, I'm so out of trim. He goes, you just kind of try to ignore it. And I said, I can't ignore it. But it's just a trimming mother scratcher. It just really, um, to me, it wasn't that great of an air show airplane. The T-34 to me is much more forgiving. Mm. Interesting. So that that big, heavy airplane, and especially being out of trim, you're low to the ground. And for our audience, when you're doing these aerobatic maneuvers, when you fly inverted, your controls are essentially reversed. So if you want to climb, you have to push the stick forward towards your dash to climb up away from the ground when you're inverted. And if you pull back on the stick, you're going to go closer to the ground, which is exactly backwards of normal flying. It sure is. And I instructed for a year in the Navy as a civilian instructor in T-34s. That's kind of how I became, um, you know, acquainted and kind of attracted to the airplane, never dreaming I'd own one in the civilian life. But like I used to tell my students, you get inverted, and, you know, luckily you're not low altitude, but low altitude you really got to think about. It. For some reason, I said, I'd want, I want to feel that stick right against my leg the whole time, the whole time. But for some reason, it's just so natural that they get inverted and they neutralize the controls. Mm. And now the roll stops, and they kind of panic, and then what's the first thing they do? They pull back on the stick. Mm, mm. So um, it's just kind of a, a deadly thing that can be bad if, if you don't have altitude below you. When you're instructing aerobatics, I always make sure there's plenty of altitude. Yeah. 
So you're, you're at Vacaville, you're in this beast of an airplane, the T-28, and you're going to do some low-altitude aerobatics. Set it up for us from there. What happened? Okay, um, this is 1982, and I actually was flying my T-34 at the Nut Tree Air Show. Oh, got it. Okay. Vacaville, when, when this happened. Okay. And I was doing a four-point roll, low-level, and I still remember this one tree that was there, and I thought maybe this is why they call it the nut tree. But the seat slid all the way back, and there I was inverted and headed for the ground, thinking, oh, my gosh. You know, I was able to aileron it back, but I had absolutely no rudder control. My feet were just far from the rudder pedals because that seat slid all the way to the back. Oh, now I can imagine. So you're inverted your seat slips to the back, and that would seem to be natural. You're holding on to the stick, so as your seat slips away, you might want to put pressure on that stick, which would pull it towards you and put the aircraft towards the ground, right, at low altitude. I didn't really pull so back much on the stick as I just rolled it wings level just as fast as I could because when that seat went back, it was just such a bang. It just really made a big bang, and, uh, and, and way I was back where I couldn't even reach the rudder pedals. So um, because it happened so quickly, I was able to aileron it over, but it sure got my attention, and I didn't finish my show. I came back and landed right away, and, of course, they were asking me what happened, and I explained. And um, So they had me come up on the announcer stand and explain what had happened, and I was still pretty <laughs> shook up about the whole thing. So you go into this uh, role. So as you go into your four-point role, normally you would pitch up a little bit, to the start of that Correct. roll, you go into your, your first uh, point on the roll, and your nose is still above the horizon, right? And right. then as Correct. you roll inverted uh, to your second point, your nose is still above the horizon but starting to drop. Is that is that right? That's right, and that's where you usually neutralize the rudder as well. And I'm still kind of pushing a little bit forward on the stick. And then on the third point is where you're neutralizing the stick, but you're not neutralizing it in aileron input, but like as far as pitch control. And now you're really stuffing what little rudder I have left in that T-34. That's the only thing about that airplane. I call it my three-and-a-half-point roll, because by the time you're on that (laughs) third point, going back to to level, you're just so out of rudder control, and you're just max aileron to the the left. Yeah, and to your point in those airplanes and in that T-34, Unlike the jets that I flew, when you wanted to do a four-point roll, it was just all aileron, and you had really good roll control, so it was a relatively easy maneuver to do. In the T-34, like you're flying, a lot of rudder and aileron-coordinated input to make that four-point roll happen, especially at the precision that you were flying it, correct? Correct, right, and low to the ground. And the more speed you have behind you, you don't really need a whole lot of speed to do a roll, but in that particular airplane lacking of rudder, it's nice to have a little bit of smash behind you so you still have the speed to, on that last point from three to four, you can just really make it so it looks somewhat crisp. It's just not as crisp as when I see these high-energy airplanes flying these four-point rolls. Oh, man, I wish I could do that. (laughs) And so there you are inverted. Your seat breaks. It slides back. You're probably about how high off the runway were you at this point when that happened? I would say um, probably one to 200 feet, so not, not like right down on the deck. Yeah, and now the challenge with just wallowing out of this thing with aileron only is you can't roll that airplane as quickly as you want to with just aileron, right? So you're kind of mushing your way out of this roll. Meanwhile, the airplane's correct. dropping towards the runway the entire time. Is that correct? 
That's absolutely correct. You said it right on, Richard. And I was so happy to be right side up, but then by that point, low to the ground and not much speed behind me. And I just, I remember just turning back to the runway and thinking, I'm done. I'm done. I'm, I was even going to quit the air show business because I thought, I don't need this. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it really got my attention. You know, it really also points out, it's it's so remarkable, people like you and Sean D. Tucker and Michael Gullion who've done this for so many years so successfully and you've been able to overcome these mechanical failures that happen, and you are so often in proximity to the ground in that high-risk environment, and somehow you're able to deal with these situations. And our listeners have heard some of them from Sean D. Tucker and, and Michael Goulian, and now yourself, and somehow you're able to keep your wits about you, get the airplane in the attitude you need to, and fly it out of the situation. What do you think, Julie, helped you in your training or your mindset to deal with that? That's a good question, Richard. I'm so disciplined, and I think a lot of that comes from, you know, I was a civilian Navy pilot, but then my um, nearly 30 years as an airline pilot, and all the training that we went through all the time, and complacency can be your worst enemy in any flying situation. So you just have to, and I'm a real practice nut. I know Sean D. Tucker is the same way. Because I live on an airport, it's so easy for me to just take off in the evening before the sun sets and just go out and fly my show. And people said, well, I would think you have it right by now. I said, well, not really, you know, because every air show is different and has different environmental things that can be challenging. And um, practice is, you just can't over-practice in an environment that we are flying in. Yeah. When I led the Thunderbirds, I would often have that comment similar to what your neighbor said, you know, is that don't you ever get tired of flying that profile? And I probably flew it a couple hundred times. And I never got tired of it because, one, to fly at the level of precision that we were trying to fly at, and we used people like you and and Sean and Michael as, as people that we would emulate, to fly at that level of precision repeatedly and consistently It takes an enormous amount of practice and focus and attention to detail and very, very small uh, maneuvers inside your airplane. Exactly. And you're your own worst critic. I mean, I get mad at certain things I'm doing and, you know, they're not noticing down below, but I'm personally just mad at myself. And I love the way you say we try and here you are the Thunderbird lead with the most precise and precision, you know, team out there that it's fun to hear from your point of view as well, that you just can't over practice these things. And and you've got to stay focused. You can't let people, um, you know, like I, I sign autographs and talk to the people and set up my little display at my RV and, you know, my truck and trailer that I've had since the early 90s. But I don't even open up for any kind of discussion until after I fly. And it's unfortunate if I fly near the end of the show because then I don't get to talk to the people if they're all leaving. But um, you just got to stay in the box and keep your mind focused. Yeah, I agree with you on that focus part. I, I did the same thing as uh, with leading the Thunderbirds. A couple hours before the show would start, there was no distractions whatsoever. And then even on a personal note, you know, about 15 minutes or so before we start our walk down, I wanted no interaction from anyone, from team members or the ops group or the air show coordinator. I was totally in my own mind and focused on that air show and those maneuvers. And I think that level of focus really brought out the best in me as a pilot. I totally agree with that. And and you don't want to snub people, especially at an air show, because the flying is only a part of it. You know, you want to interact with the crowd. You want to meet the people. And, you know, I, my biggest thing is inspire the young people because they're our mm-hmm. future. 
but there's a time and a place to do that, and usually it's after the flight. After the show, yeah, I agree. Now, also, don't you think that focus on precision, working so hard to get it exactly right, was a big uh, ingredient to the safety and why you could do it so safely for 40 years? I was actually told one time up in Canada, up in Hamilton, and the uh, air boss, not the air boss, but the, um, you know, their FAA equivalent comes up to me and says, I've watched you now for five days. You fly the same show, the same maneuver in the same spot to the same altitude every time I've watched you. And I, I, I took that as a compliment because you just want to fly it the same way all the time. And um, precision is the name of the game, and precision to me keeps you safe as well. Yeah, I agree with you. I think good flying is safe flying, and there's, and there's very little difference between the two. Mm-hmm. So, I agree. I can't imagine being inverted like that and bang the, uh, you hear the seat slide back on you, not knowing what's coming now. You got to wallow this T-34 out with aileron only. Meanwhile, you're, you're closing in on the ground at a pretty rapid pace. Yeah. So no wonder you brought that in and landed and said, I'm going to just sit and think about this one for a bit. Yep. The same screw and bolts are still in that seat to this day. And, um, it, they, it never gets moved ever, you know, (laughs) unless you're a short person, nobody flies that airplane. (laughs) And uh, my mechanic, when he has to fly it, he, <laughs> he takes the seat cushion off, puts the seat real low so that he's, you know, at least can get his head over, you know, the canopy over his head. And, but he comes back and says, oh, my God. I said, well, Judd, you know, <laughs> and he's the one that fixed it. And I've had the same mechanic fixing my airplane and maintaining it and doing the annual every year since 1978. And that's exactly mm-hmm. the year I started flying air shows. So nice. I fly to Illinois. It's kind of a pain to go to Illinois. And I live in California, but... Um, He and his dad have done a great job all these years. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned that there were a couple. Were there any other instances that made you tense up a little bit? Well, I was flying, um, this is now in the T-28, and I, I owned okay. that airplane for 22 years. Um, I was with nine T-28s, and you can relate to this formation. Of course, we're not Thunderbirds, but uh, I think the T-28 pilots like to think they are. You know, all the formation pilots, I'm not just, uh, you know, picking on the T-28s, but we were flying in a nine ship, and we've been down practicing for Oshkosh, and so now we're on our way to Oshkosh, and we're in a nine ship formation of three Vicks in a row, and my position was Charlie three, so I'm the third right wing on this Vic of three in a row, Mm. and um, we've been flying maybe 10 or 15 minutes, still doing maneuvers, and now we're, we're formed up to head on up north, and Without, I don't know how I actually noticed this because my back seater was 20 years old and not a pilot and all excited that he was getting to fly with me up to Oshkosh. And I happened to look down and see my big chip light, big red light. And it said front, you know, it says fore or aft. So it's the front section or the rear section of these big round 1820s. And so right away, without even thinking, again, there I was pulling out of the formation and declaring a mayday. And um, I think I just shocked everybody because at that point we really weren't talking among ourselves. And um, 
I think our lead pilot was talking to somebody, you know, on the ground, a center or somebody, but I just yelled, mayday, mayday, I've got an engine failure, and the engine didn't, in fact, it never quit, but boy, I had absolutely no power, and what really saved me on this deal, Richard, was the prop never quit turning, because in a T-28, if that prop Mm. stops, where you are is where you're going down, but as soon as I declared a mayday, the lead pilot said, Number three, what are your intentions? I said, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've got to get out of the. I've got an engine failure. I'm out of here. And so um, I said, Where am I? Because when you know, when you're, well, you're the lead. You're flying lead. But when you're flying wing, you don't know. You don't know anything except the airplane you're looking at. Right. So he said to me on the radio, Turn to a heading. I don't remember what it is. Like 120 degrees. You're 11 miles from Kenosha. And, and meanwhile, then I hit emergency on my. Um, we didn't have GPSs back then. It was like a Loran. You know, this, this yeah. was 1999, July 26th, I can tell you the date. <laughs> and as it ends up, I blew um, up, up a hole right through uh, one of my cylinders. The piston went right through it. So I was puffing smoke and um, had no power. But the engine, like I said, it never really quit. But there was absolutely no power. And it, it was pretty quiet. It was like it idled. And um, I did what he told me to do. I held that 130 knots and um, headed for Kenosha. He gave me the tower frequency. I called him, and this woman tower controller, she asked me like about three times, say the number of souls on board, uh, say your intentions, and what's your end number, and color of aircraft. So I repeated this like three times. Finally, I said, ma'am, just look for a big yellow airplane, because I know if you see me, then that means I've made it to the airport, because I <laughs> did not think I was going to make it. And my backseater is yelling at me. He's 20 years old. Are we bailing out? Are we bailing out? I said, Josh, we're not bailing out. There's a lot of flat areas down here. But again, there I was, you know, trying to fly the airplane. I didn't really attempt to try to restart anything. And I didn't want to play with that prop control because I didn't want that prop to quit turning. By this time now, I'm covered with oil, completely covered with oil. I was able to get the canopy partially open because it's hydraulically driven. And um, by George, we, we, I, I remember seeing the airport and seeing the tower, and I just landed on the runway. All the crash trucks were there waiting for us. I never made it off the taxi. We had absolutely no power after that. And um, I was just so glad, first of all, nobody's ever gotten hurt on my watch, and I was more concerned about this 20-year-old kid in my back seat because um, I kept telling him, if we bail out, we will get hurt. You'll survive, but you'll probably get hurt. Yeah. It ended up being a, a great day, and again, there I was um, really wondering, am I going to find this airport, and am I going to be able to keep this airplane flying? Boy, what a situation there. I mean, so much there came to play for you. You're flying in formation, and to your point, when you're flying on the wing in formation, a lot of people may not know this if they don't fly formation, but you you don't look forward. You are very focused, especially if you're in a close formation, on your lead airplane or or the airplane next to you, and you put, you have certain References you're looking for in good formation is just like good instrument flying. You're constantly scanning those references to make mm-hmm. sure that you, uh, for good formation, it's a lot of slight changes and no big changes. Exactly. Constant changes, but little ones. Yeah. So you're f- totally focused on that. So it's, it's completely understandable that you really don't know where you are. I mean, you, you have an idea of where you are, of course, you know, big picture, but you don't yeah. know exactly where you are because you're focused on flying formation. But out of the corner of your eye, and I haven't flown a T-28, but out of the corner of your eye, you see this chip detector light. And you knowing your systems and knowing your airplane, you know exactly what that was. It's just an automatic mayday. Even if it ended up being a light, that'd be fine because I'd have power to join back up. But I wouldn't <laughs> have done that. I would have found an airport to land. But as it ends up, when they pulled my oil pump, which is at the bottom of the engine, the guy literally said, 
wow, I can read part numbers on this thing. So <laughs> I was making major metal. As much as I hate to get into this, and I won't prolong this, it became a big issue at EAA because Tom Poberezny heard about it, a very good friend of mine, and when he found out that nobody followed me down, it, it turned into a big issue that even went into the winter where I had to come back and we had, had a, a, a meeting because they kept saying, why did no one come out of that formation and follow her? And so, as it ends up, my wingman was a World War II B-17 pilot, and every time we checked in, and you can remember this, Richard, you'd say, Thunderbird check-in, one, two, three, you know, right, right down the line. So we'd say, um, Trojan check-in, Alpha, one, two, three, or two, three, Bravo, two, three, uh, Charlie, Number two never checked in. Every time we had a check-in, I kept thinking, mm. what the hell's wrong with him? <laughs> Found out he was wearing a helmet, and he had never plugged it into the airplane. Oh, my gosh. He was being asked, why didn't you follow her? He said, oh, well, all I saw was a big yellow belly that just went up and away. So I figured she had a problem, but I didn't know what was going on. So then the leader of the Alpha Bravo Charlie flight, then he kind of got, you know, nailed. Why didn't you go? And then finally got all the way up to the leader. And I felt always bad about that. And I was telling Tom Pobre, hey, let's just drop it. It's not that big a deal. It is a big deal, Julie. We, we need to get to the bottom of this. And I didn't want to see anybody really get their right. heads rolled. But, I mean, they finally dropped it. And it was all good. And it had a good outcoming besides. So Yeah. Now, that's really interesting, though, Julie. So the fact that he didn't check in, and it sounds like he was never connected, so he must have missed several check-ins. And yeah. at some point, one of the leads in the formation should have kind of stopped the music there and said, hey, where's Charlie 2 or Bravo 2 or whatever his call sign Charlie was? Charlie 2. Right? I was Charlie 3. And you're right. Yeah. Why, you know, we still continued up to Oshkosh, and, you know, he'd been having radio problems. You know, we, maybe he was plugged in the day before. You know, we were there a couple of days practicing for just getting up to Oshkosh, to AirVenture, and... Um, he was just kind of a weak link in the flight. Yeah. So somebody should have kind of stopped. One of the leads should have stopped there and said, hey, where's, where's Bravo 2? Let's get everybody on frequency. That's kind of a basics of uh, a formation. And then, sure enough, look at the impact it had mm-hmm. that when you pulled out of the formation and ended up being you didn't have somebody that could have perhaps provided you some mutual support in, in your situation. Right. It turned out to be fine for you, but certainly would have been optimum for him to have heard all that and then to peel out with you and chase you and provide you checklists back up or point out traffic or airfields or whatever else he could he could think of. Exactly. In fact, that became a big issue that now um, I still fly a lot of formation with b- both 28s and 34s, but I just recently flew down to Palm Springs with 17 T-34s, and I always go down there just to have fun, and we put on a little show for the folks in Palm Springs, and it's a big emphasis that if something happens, don't let this guy go down alone. You know, the wingman, you're you're there, you take care of this person, you just follow him down. People were wondering, did Julie Clark ever make it? Did she, where'd (laughs) she land? I mean, I guess when they all got to Oshkosh, the word had gotten back that I had made it to this Kenosha airport. I have to admit, if I was in the flight, I'd be thinking, oh, my gosh, where are they going to go? You know, somebody should have come with me, I guess. But I was just so happy to be on the ground that I really didn't put a lot of emphasis on it. Yeah, what we would uh, work on is that in that situation, you're a wingman there to provide mutual support. Number one, stay out of the emergency pilot's way and don't add to their problem. And there were some famous instances back in my Air Force days where there were support wingmen that were too active and too communicative and really caused a lot of distractions. So you don't want to do that. You do want to just fly along with them and sort of anticipate the help they may need 
answer questions they may have, point out airfields or very basic stuff, and give them a lot of space and room and, and be there to help them if they need it. Yeah, that's an interesting lesson learned there is that kind of started with, hey, everybody's got to be on frequency. And if somebody misses, there's a reason why you do your check-ins. And if mm-hmm. somebody misses a check-in, you got to go back and figure out why and where they are. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. And, and you had a very good point there that I never really have put a lot of thought into until just right now is I, what if you do go out down and, and somebody's following you who's a chatterbox? You know, I was so concentrating on the 130 knots, trying to find Kenosha Airport, talking to this controller and telling my backseater, just remain cool, you know, just quit talking. And um, you're right, the distractions, it, that could be definitely more of a negative than a positive. Yeah, That's another situation you had to deal with. So you had a relatively young person in your backseat, 20 years old or so. Was he a pilot? No. He Uh, was my ground crew, and um, I asked if he'd like to fly up with me to Oshkosh, and he was just so excited. And so he's in the the backseat, and now he's kind of nervous, so he's becoming a, a bit of an issue for you to manage and control. And it sounds like you had to be somewhat directive with him so that you could focus on flying the airplane. I did. I had to yell at him because he kept saying, I'm rebelling out, rebelling out. And I, I used a few expletives and boy, he, he really shut up after that. And then when we got there and landed and the, you know, then the airplane is just dead. And I couldn't even, I kind of made it to the high speed, but not quite. So I still fought at the runway and I felt bad about that. And so then I jumped out of the airplane. My face is all full of oil. I'm just, just covered with oil. So I jump out through the small opening that, of the canopy that I could get opened with as much hydraulic pressure as we had in the line to get me out. And so then I get down and out in the back canopy of the T-28 goes way forward. So he couldn't get out. So I'm sitting there kissing the ground and, you know, we, we, he and I still, he's 40 years old now and we still talk about that flight and he goes, yeah, and she's there kissing the ground and I'm still sitting in this airplane, but we knew fire wasn't an issue and all the fire trucks were all there. I, I was just so happy to be on the ground and, and know that he was safe. So going back to, so you see the chip detector out of the corner of your eye, you peel up out of the formation, and at that point, were you focusing on immediately pitching to your best glide? Were you working, you know, the propeller mixture, trying to see what's going on with this engine, or what was going on there with your reaction once you cleared the formation? The first thing I did, and I have to say this was my first thing, is just climb, climb, climb. At that point, I, I knew I had trouble. I knew I had a bad engine because, because it was obvious. But I just wanted to get as much altitude as I could. And luckily, we were cruising about 8,500. So by the time I got out of that formation, I was past 9,500. Oh, nice. So I really had a lot of ground below, you know, a lot of air below me before the ground. And then, of course, I'm try- I thought, okay, i got to try to see if I can get this thing start- restarted. But it wasn't a matter of what it didn't quit exactly. It was definitely an engine that was dying. Mm. You know, it was making metal. And um, that's what I have to say. That chip light was telling me the absolute truth before and aft because you have two sections. So and it was it wasn't blinking. It was bright on. And I also have in there called it's called a skinny dipper. And a skinny dipper is normally used for um, people that like I use a skinny dipper for when I flew my T-34 to Bermuda and I had an external fuel tank so that I knew what kind of fuel state I had in this big 60-gallon tank in my back seat, which is more than I carried in the wings. So the Skinny Dipper is a vertical light display that shows you how much you have on board. So a lot of T-28 guys, we've put them in uh, for oil. So I don't know what it is about pilots, but I'm looking at my Skinny Dipper, and it's blinking on the very last little dot. In other words, 
I have no oil. So I knew I was in trouble, and you're kind of hitting the gauge, and I'm going, what? that's not going to fix it. But it's so funny what pilots do. But my big thing after just getting out of that formation was to climb, 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 get that frequency, tune in Kenosha, and I knew there wasn't anything I could do except hold that 130 knots. I really was pretty sure the engine was, you know, it was roached, and um, I just need to get it on the ground. So I held that 130 knots like there was no tomorrow. And now you're basically maintaining your best glide speed there. You're pointed towards uh, the airport you were headed towards, and the engine is rotating. You said something I thought was interesting earlier in that the propeller was still rotating. So at some point you decided, the only thing I could do from here is more harm. So I'm not going to mess with the propeller or the mixture or anything else because this thing is at least windmilling. Yep, I was at mixture normal. So I remember going in the T28, you don't lean and it's just a full rich normal or idle cutoff. I pushed the, the, the mixture all the way forward, and I didn't. I, I remember looking at prop control and going, I ain't touching that thing because <laughs> I want this prop to keep turning. Yeah, and that one decision there, no telling, Julie, but that one decision could have made a very big difference in, in you making the field or not. I totally agree. Those T28s, they're such big props, and um, if they stop, it's like a big, big speed break. Mm-hmm. You are where you are is where you're pretty much going to be planted. You know, and I don't mean planted literally. I mean, you could probably get on the ground, but they, they do say that if that prop stops, you're in a world of hurt. There you are. Get it on the ground. It goes back to knowing your airplane, knowing your systems, and then something like that, not necessarily in the checklist. It's just good thinking, good head work, we used to call it. Knowing your aircraft, knowing your systems, and making a gut call on some, some common sense that turns out to be the right approach. And then you're holding that 130 and at some point, you held your gear, I'm presuming, or any kind of flaps. You said that was hydraulically mm-hmm. activated. So any concern there if this thing, you know, completely seizes? Everything in that airplane is hydraulic. Even the canopy is hydraulic. Yeah. And, and systems knowledge, like you said, th- that is your best friend in flying these big warbirds. You've got to know the systems because if you don't, it will kill you. Mm-hmm. You need to know what makes these things work. And luckily, when I saw the airport, everything, I had, you know, no flaps and you know, I had the canopy open because I just needed to see, and the whole windscreen was just, you know, covered in oil. Yeah. But um, you just, I did not even lower the gear. And luckily, it's, it, you can, um, it, it's just gravity. So it, I had no problem getting that gear down, but I didn't even bother with the flaps. Wow. Calm head throughout the whole thing, dealing with, uh, dealing with your formation, dealing with a backseater, and then with an airplane that was being temperamental on you and, and bringing it in safely. It's amazing how when things like that really go south, and you find yourself, and then there I was type of situation, your head really kicks in. You don't have time to think of anything else except what you need to get done, and we need to do it right now. One other situation you shared with me, Julie, and we won't share any destinations or, or anything, but you know, as I do, that in general aviation, get there-itis is a real challenge for a lot of pilots. They feel external pressures to get home or to get to the graduation or get to the job. And sometimes they make suboptimum launch decisions or takeoff decisions. I recently taught my son to fly, and I told him the most important decision you'll ever make as a pilot is whether or not to fly that day. And so you were sharing with me a story where you were coming uh, from one air show to another. You had an event that they really wanted you to be at, and you left three or four days early. You had plenty of time. But the weather turned south on you, and you were, you were really in a box and in a bind. Do you mind sharing that story with us? 
Yes, that one event is pretty much what made me think I, uh, I've been doing this now for this is my 41st season, and truly the hardest thing in this whole business is getting that airplane from A to B. That's why I have so many hours in this T-34, but it's just the pressure of, um, I do not fly in thunderstorms. I fly hard IFR, and you know I've gotten myself in some icing conditions over Montana, which were not pretty, and you just want to you know, get out of that as soon as you can, and you can't really descend over the mountain. So I, I really watch that, but I'm such a weather-driven person, and when I got stuck down in the southeast and I knew I had to get up to this northern event, I was there for two or three days, and, and so I finally made it, but had to do all the flying in the evening and night and got in and, you know, made the event. But it's the pressure and weather can ruin your whole day in a heartbeat. And I just don't fly in thunderstorms and I don't fly in anything that um, can be hazardous to me or you have to really respect your airplane's abilities. So, Julie, this has been your last year flying air shows. Any final thoughts or anything you want to say to our listeners and your fans before we close out? Well, I want to thank Tempest. They've been certainly taking care of me for the last five years. And um, this particular year being my final air show season, I've actually made up a big, um, it's like a pop-up banner. And it's thanking all, I endorse 23 aviation companies from propellers to headsets to engines to parachutes. These are people that have really taken care of me, some for as many as 30 years. So I made this really cool banner that when we're at these air shows, I'll be pulling the banner up and setting it there beside um, where we sign the autographs just to thank all these companies. And like I said, there's um, 23-plus Mopar, Chevron, and Juice Plus took care of me and those sponsorships. So it's a nice banner that I'm having made up to thank these companies. So um, I appreciate that you asked me that, and this is my final season and I'm going to miss the people the very most of all. It's been a great run, but um, it, it, you kind of know when the time is right. And so I felt that this is the right time. Well, yeah, Julie, it's bittersweet. Um, I've really enjoyed watching you this past year. You've had a great career, and we're all going to miss the, you and that iconic T-34 on the air show circuit. And we wish you all the best. Thank you so much. This has been very, very um, just a, a really fun hour to spend with you. So much to learn from that discussion with Julie Clark. When you think about flying for 50 years and achieving the Master Pilot Award from the FAA, that in and of itself is a remarkable achievement. But 40 of those years flying in low-altitude airshow aerobatic performances more than 20 a year, that's just a phenomenal safety record and really speaks to Julie how she thinks and how she flies. What an honor to talk to her this afternoon. Thanks for joining us on There I Was. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden, alongside Tyler Pangborn, our producer. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue them and our other important safety work, please consider a donation at aopafoundation.org. That's aopafoundation.org slash donate and help us continue our important work to advance general aviation safety. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. (music) Thank you.